0: Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Cinema. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments, and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at, at com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, we welcome a special guest to the podcast. Lillian Crawford is a film journalist who has written for Little White Lies, Sight and Sound, Girls on Tops, and BBC Culture and has recently taken on a new role as Question Researcher for the BBC's University Challenge. Lillian brings the 2001 cult romantic comedy Amelie to the podcast for discussion, and she is joined by regulars Janet Harbord, John James Laidlow and Alex Woodowson. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Autism Through Cinema podcast. Today we're discussing the film Amelie from 2001 by Jean-Pierre Genet. Uh, and in discussion we have our regular members, uh, John James Laidlow, Alex Wooderson and myself, Janet Harbord. And we're delighted to be in discussion this week with our special guest, Lillian Crawford. Uh, Lillian, you may know as a film and culture writer who publishes in uh, places such as Little White Lies, BBC Culture, Sight and Sound, Girls on Tops, and Screen Rant. Uh, her work often focuses on issues of gender and trans representation. Um, she's also uh, a video essayist with a particular penchant for Powell and Pressburger, I've discovered, um, and also, uh, I think. One of the most interesting things I've read recently by Lillian was about a challenge to the film canon and the, and the idea of uh, uh, the best of compilation lists that tend to uh, reproduce ideas of white, Western, heteronormative ideas. Um, so uh, really compelling writer and thinker about film we have with us this week. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Lillian to tell us why Amelie has been her choice for us to discuss on this particular podcast
2: thank you um yeah as you say a lot of what i'm interested in is how sort of um the canon of cinema has been curated and um dominated by a very specific sort of um critical perspective um and what a lot of my research involves and something that i develop is um about post-war british cinema and women in post-war british cinema and and um representations of queerness in the 40s and 50s as well Um, and I I do a podcast called Listen to Lillian about that and I have a blog um, developing on my research that I was doing at university Um, so I was thinking about doing a film from that period um, on this podcast and I thought I could do that but then I decided that actually I'd choose something more personally Um, powerful um, that I connect with um, on a level of of autism and, and, and as a woman who perhaps doesn't always notice the fact that there are autistic traits there and I think it's a fascinating film to look at because it's one of those films where it's sort of autism is written into the fabric of the film rather than sort of being overtly stated that Amelie is an autistic character herself so yeah, and thought this was an interesting film for us to discuss and to sort of illuminate those those aspects.
1: Absolutely. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the setup of the film? Who Emily is? Yeah. So the film
2: sort of starts off with this incredible whirlwind of information um, of how she sort of came into the world, precisely the moment um at which she was conceived by her parents um and then she uh is is sort of described as being incredibly quirky um and sort of very sensorially aware she gets a lot of pleasure from things like cracking creme brulee and skimming stones on saint martin canal um and she works at this at this cafe and 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 she, one day she she discovers a box of items in her apartment and she decides to find the person that that belonged to um, and that sort of leads her on a journey to do good things um, and ultimately to, um, she finds a, a photo album and um, she starts to sort of Develop feelings, um, romantic feelings for a man that she's never actually met um, and these are very new and scary feelings to her and it's sort of about her romantic pursuits, perhaps not the right word but um, sort of uh, calamities that before her on, on her journey to sort of expressing her feelings towards this man.
1: I mean one of the things that struck me about this film is how much it's it's a film that is interested in accidents and contingencies. Um, and I really liked that about the film, that it's very playful um, and we have a sense of, of Emily's imagination that comes into the world as a mode of engagement, that there's a sort of... Uh, way in which she operates in the world indirectly with people through through tricks through um setups Uh, and then there's also in the film a lot of use of uh of of mediated communication of things like letters photographs videos um i think there's also uh voice recorders and and um and of course the, the 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 stills camera that her father gives her when she's when she's young. Um, So there's a way in which the film kind of sets up all of these, these, these ways of communicating that are indirect and and through something else. And the film is a sort of a gradual move towards the final um, contact between her and, and this man who she falls in love with from a distance. And and I think that that's a really, um, really interesting way of thinking about the difficulty of, of, communi- of communication of, of direct communication of how to correspond with people how to approach um, and that that seemed to be very much um, at the heart of the film and also of course about contrivance itself and filmmaking is a contrivance so I thought there's it's sort of the film's quite playful but it also plays plays with that idea of communication as um, always potentially troublesome but al- but also um, delightful and that's that's kind of where we we go to with the film
2: yeah oh sorry (laughs) that's all right um I was just going to respond by by sort of saying that um I think that that's what's so endearing about this film is that she's sort of in her own world um of her imagination and she's sort of she can become almost locked into that at times and the film itself broadly is is that world that we we're seeing the world through through her perspective so paris becomes this incredibly sanitized version of of paris and it's sort of um shot through this very particular style that chene has in greens and um we hear the sound design is 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 sort of playing to that a lot there's there's a lot of um when she's sort of anxious or 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 an event sort of um comes at her the sound is very heightened and she sort of responds to that in a way that perhaps we don't often see in a lot of films that these where criticism is directed at Amelie it tends to come as a sort of um, critique of its lack of naturalness or or, or, or realism from, from a certain perspective but certainly when she's sort of in the metro station and the sounds are heightened or uh, and so on you sort of it gives you an idea of what the world can sound like to an autistic person at times and I think that that is particularly heightened during moments of of social anxiety and that's perhaps where I'm most did, most related to Emily when I was younger and 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 as I've gotten older as 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 a woman negotiating those sorts of relationships and not always being clear on what other people's intentions might be whether or not they might be the same as your own um and I I think that that's that's something that Personally, I find very powerful that other films perhaps don't offer so much. Normally, there's sort of a, a romantic arc, which is very clear cut and very sort of that's the way that things are done. And Emily doesn't quite know how to engage with that. Um, she sort of starts off by introducing her as someone who's who's had boyfriends, but it's been disappointing. And there's this shot of her having sex with a man and she's very clearly sort of disassociated or not emotionally engaged in that relationship um and i think that that's that's quite a powerful depiction of how something going wrong once can can impact our our perspectives of sort of how future events will go and impact the anxieties that we might face in trying to engage in a similar situation again um and there's this this, this beautiful theme that comes throughout with the the guy who's described as the glass man, that she can take a few knocks and it won't be the end of the world, but it can it can feel like that to her, um, which I think plays into that that sort of broader fabric of the film.
3: I just wanted to start by thanking Lillian for suggesting this because um, I haven't seen this film in many years and I, I was slightly nervous that it, because it was a film I loved when I was much younger, that I wouldn't it wouldn't live up to perhaps my more particular snobby tastes now. Um but and also I I wasn't diagnosed last time I as autistic last time I watched this film. And I was re- I re really surprised and and glad that that I really enjoyed this film. And I mean it's it's about twenty years since it came out and I think it's it was like It was really nice to watch the film now and see how all these characters um, interact and form a little community, especially, you know, hopefully coming out of of lockdown and how how difference was really celebrated. And um, um, Emily seems very sort of non-judgmental of the characters that were... um, labeled as different there's there's Lucian the 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 grocer's um assistant who is quite rudely um described and 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 bullied by the grocer and and there's the glass man and there's there's a there's a, a brief appearance by a husband who's described as senile and and whereas whereas his the the man's wife is sort of judgmental of him Emily really connects with him, and he he says, you know, we've we've got to find a way to let out our stress. And she whispers, "I skim stones." And yeah, so I thought it was a a really nice film to watch, especially especially right now.
4: Yeah, I was quite struck by that. Um, uh, what, what you were talking about, John James, the uh, the supposedly senile husband who is labelled that way because he likes hole punching the leaves of the house plants. But obviously, it, it should, in fact, be referenced to memory. And he has perfect memory, remembering the family uh, that lived in the flat that he was, that Amelie was trying to look down. And the wife, who who so cruelly dismisses him, has to get out her ledger and uh, find out the information through this sort of record. And I think also, is what, so what is this film trying to say about um, these characters and why I mean, the most intriguing aspect of that is why doesn't the the, the husband sort of defend himself? He, you know, he has the small victory of telling Emily the right answer, but he doesn't really bother confronting the wife, even though he could easily sort of prove himself to be more with it than she gives him credit for. Um, and so there's, there's a sort of peace and acceptance with difference in this film. There's a strong acknowledgement of the oppressive forces in... What I guess we could call a neurotypical dominant society, but um yeah the, it felt like there was a sort of ease with the the differences in the characters, and each character who is who's is somehow sort of signified as um an outsider um uh, 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 the the film goes into much greater detail about their sort of personal perspective and their character development or at least the details of their character. Um, whereas this sort of uh, unencumbered um, sort of neurotypical non-disabled characters uh, are all relatively sort of prop-like in the story or even villains so yeah there's there's this certainly I mean at one point when Emily is in a very low state I think she things hadn't been turning turning well going well in the uh, romance Uh, she's sort of having this internal dialogue uh, writing down this sort of or sort of uh, narrating this, um, this sort of self-punishing aspect of perspective on herself. And she's described as the queen of the outsiders and I think the Madonna of uh, uh, something else as well. Yeah, the Madonna of the unloved. And um, so, yeah, there is this sort of... The, I think, yeah, there's a lot of sort of acceptance and embracing of those cultures. And I think, you know, at worst there's maybe an us-versus-them attitude in the film. So Amelie um, does take vengeance on the grocer who is so cruel to his, um, to his uh, assistant um, grocer. And she basically sort of shuffles around items in his, in his home. She sort of steals a key, basically gets it copied. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of the more humorous scenes in the film, but essentially it's gaslighting. And so uh, it's this film isn't totally above board. It's not she's not, uh, you know, virtuous in the sense that it's an ethical sort of icon. But I guess uh, maybe it's like the tables are turned. Maybe that's the reason she gaslights him.
2: Um, yeah, it's interesting you saying about sort of um, her internal monologue, Alex, because um, it's something that the film doesn't really sort of allow. There, there is a voiceover, but it's from a sort of, omniscient narrator it's not from her perspective um i don't know if any of you have seen the stage musical of Emily, which is in in london at the moment but that that gives her that sort of monologue that she's she sort of sings she sort of sings those those thought processes so there's like when she first goes to the um the porn video shop where nino works and she's in the musical, she's dressed as a nun. And she starts panicking that if she meets him dressed as a nun, he'll think that um, she's chaste and, and not interested in in, in sex. Um, which she sort of sings this whole song about, um, there's a really beautiful metaphor in the musical that's not in the film of, of when she was taught by her mother at home. Um, she was told about a ship that sort of goes towards the shore and her perspective on the ship is that it's always there's always still halfway to go that the distance is always the same no matter how close you get to the shore and she sings about that in in the the musical and uh, whereas in the film these, these are all things that are sort of more implicit things that you can code in a film through music or through sound design or through visual cues that you can't necessarily do on stage so they have to make it perhaps more more obvious what sh- what she's thinking um and i i wonder if that's why to some extent amelie hasn't been discussed very well i mean it has been discussed through an autistic perspective but not not much um and i think it's interesting that perhaps as an autistic person watching this film those those elements will perhaps stand out more than they would to sort of an and someone who's not autistic watching this film um yeah i'm just interested in what your thoughts are on that
4: well um like i think a lot of the rest of you um i've not seen this film in a very long time um i mean i must have been i don't know 14 when i watched it and obviously it was brilliant at the time. Um, but I, I was absolutely astonished at how many sort of overtly autistic traits were sort of presented in the film uh, I mean Lillian, you've covered a lot of them already but um so I did a quick google and I found uh a few uh um sort of twitter threads sort of uh, chronicling the uh the sort of details of autistic autism in the uh, present in the film uh ben uh at autistic autisticteria. That's quite hard to read <laughs> Twitter mm-hmm. handles, but um, yeah, so Ben Ben basically went through all the different details, screenshots, captions of all these aspects of it and started a bit of a discussion. And part of it was really trying to understand why why is this character not labeled autistic? What was the point uh, in um, sort of coding but not really acknowledging, and someone raised the point, well, it's a French film and, and there's a possibility this sort of narrative of autism is very much um, dominated by psychoanalysis uh, and even to a certain extent is not called autism. It, it, sometimes it's referred to, or something similar sort of traits are referred to as childhood psychosis or, or various other sort of labels. Um, and so it's a, it's a very, very different history and and, and sort of contextual Framework for autism in France, um, so that might be an aspect of it, but actually also the narrative links. Um, it, it sort of justifies, or, or sort of explains, or implies that uh, Amélie is shy and and introverted, and and uh, because her parents were um, somewhat. Uh, uh, shy themselves, and uh, uh, hypochondriacs, and she was homeschooled. And, um, you know, there's even over reference to her sort of desperately wanting affection from her father. And this ties into the very old and debunked uh, sort of psychoanalytic uh, justification or explanation of autism being an emotional uh, sort of uh, condition relating to um, behaviour of parents. Uh, I mean, this has been dismissed. Uh, I think it was Bettelheim who, who was sort of pr- propagating this in, in America. But, I mean, this was dismissed a long time ago, but it was a very, very damaging narrative that p- put all the blame on parents. But you can see that uh, in the sort of structure of this narrative. So it could just be a totally different um, psychological framework, uh, w- which explains why the label's not used.
2: It, this, it, the film perhaps connects with me in a way because I when I I was a child and I was I was um, tested for autism and I I was told that I was probably high functioning but sort of the word the word doctors used to use was I'm just very quirky and interesting and didn't sort of put that label on it and it's only really as I've gotten older that I've sort of revisited that because I, su- I suppose I was sort of told that, well, you don't have autism because you were told you don't have that. And actually later on in my life, those aspects uh, of, of of autism have become perhaps more prevalent, um, particularly in terms of social anxieties that I have and um, my sensory awareness and the impact that that has on, on, on my life and my ability to sort of function within the world. Um, and I, I think that that's true of a lot of, of girls and, and, and women that perhaps it's not always obvious. I don't think... Amelie is, is is quite reclusive and there's no reason for her to sort of speculate that she would have autism. As you said, her parents are sort of presented it almost... I mean, it might be because a lot of the characters in the film sort of almost might seem autistic because we're very much seeing it through Emily's perspective um her dad is is uh, her parents are sort of introduced in the same way very much through their sort of likes and dislikes which are all very much sort of um to do with with sensory things um the mother is described as as not liking the touch of strangers and um she hates the puckering of her fingers in the bathtub and it's it's interesting that if you watch this film, it's sort of at what point would people sort of, where would she get come to know that she had autism if she did? And who would sort of be telling her about that? And I think what's really beautiful and moving in the film is that the people she works with at the, um, the Two Windmills Cafe are very supportive of her and very protective of her. And when Nino sort of shows up to... Um, with, with with his romantic intentions towards her, um, Gina, one of the other waitresses in the cafe, sort of takes him on a walk and and wants to make sure that his intentions are sort of honourable uh, and make sure that he knows that that Emily is quite a vulnerable person and doesn't deserve sort of to be treated in the way that other men have sort of treated her and 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 the other women in in the cafe have also been treated quite had quite bad romantic experiences and they want to to shield emily from that because they sort of sense that if she has a bad first experience of that then she probably won't try it ever again um i think that that's incredibly beautiful it's it's nice to sort of be watched out for in in that way and it's it's good that she has that community despite the fact that she's very much sort of living in her own world and quite self-contained in in her ambitions. As you said, when she's helping people, she sort of she doesn't confront people directly. She always does it from the sidelines or or in very subtle ways, um, rather than sort of making a song and dance about it.
1: I'm just thinking about that scene that you're talking about, Lillian, where um where Nina gets kind of um tested out by by emily's colleague and and even that actually is is an indirect way of of working out who he is isn't it that she she tests out proverbs to see whether he can he can answer the second part of them he knows them and it's like so it's almost as though his relationship to the world needs to be coded through this this you know metaphoric way of thinking um, and if if he gets that, then he passes the test. And there's something in in the film that about language. I think that is a kind of challenge to that idea that when we speak, we express ourselves, and that we you know we we have intention, and it's going out into the world, and we can address someone directly, and they will understand what we mean. The film seems to suggest the opposite that that when there is direct communication, it's problematic. Language is perhaps a bit untrustworthy. And it, it will only work through these sort of riddles or proverbs. Um, but perhaps it works best of all when it comes through objects. And there's there's a lot of object richness in this film and and also actions. What people do seems to be more important than what they say. And so you, you were just talking just now about how we get to know characters. And I think Alex was talking about that too, about how, you know, we, we get to know people through their likes and dislikes rather than, you know, what, what is said about them or what they say uh directly to other people and i thought that was that was a kind of a reference to autism as well in the film or it's certainly a way that we might understand autism as sort of not putting language as a primary thing as a at the center of um of our experience
3: um we've, we've mentioned um get getting to know characters through their actions and their likes and and the way we're introduced to Amelie's parents is um they they both do a, a similar sort of ritual where they they empty something sort it out and put it all back um and with with the father it's the toolbox and with the mother it's the handbag and that's um it's quite heavily gendered and um the way Amelie sort of sort of observes she almost makes makes like character bios for people and she has sort of shortcuts for interacting with people. Um, mm. I wondered if that was sort of um, referencing um, this sort of, I think it, it's primarily anecdotal um, descriptions of how women with autism, or autistic women, um quite often go undiagnosed for longer or in greater numbers because they learn to to mask socially very early on they, so perhaps this speaks to these sort of almost like shortcuts and and, and strategies that Amelie's learning to to move around in the world and and interact with people
2: yeah i i definitely think that that that's the sort of the the narrative thread of 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 princess diana and how she sort of sees on the television about her um her good deeds and things and she starts to emulate that because she it's it's interesting how watching something on a television screen she decides to emulate that because she see she sees um diana as someone who has sort of successfully engaged with people um, on 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 a very large scale, and she sort of starts to try to mimic that behavior in her own life, and and it sort of starts off. The the voiceover comes in and sort of says, um, if it works, and she returns the box to Bretador, um, then she will be a do-gooder and 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 always help people out. And if not, too bad. It's it's she's never going to try that again. And I think that's that's perhaps partly why film appeals to me and always has done is that I, i i do sort of emulate things um i there's a really beautiful documentary um called life animated which i'm sure you're aware of um where um an autistic man learns to sort of communicate through disney films and that's something that i would do as a child i mean i still largely talk in film quotes and book quotes and things because I find that a good sort of reference point point. Um, and I think that that's something that's really interesting and in sort of her almost obsessive behavior in that respect and that's something that other characters have as you said it's sort of like the different hobbies and pursuits that people have Nino himself has these these things like collecting the the, the photographs from 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 phone booths and this these sort of rituals and and interests that Allow them to sort of ground themselves within the world, um which I find very relatable and quite beautiful um in ways that perhaps think things that w- in in any other context or a different sort of film would go unnoticed but um genet sort of finds the beauty in and believes deserves the attention um of narrative and 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 a film that um, perhaps we don't see elsewhere, I, I really appreciate.
4: Um, Lillian, you were, you were talking about sort of emulation and sort of borrowing from films and, and as a sort of, you know, a, a way to navigate the world. And, and, and this is something I do as well. You know, I just went to a wedding and the journey down there, I was trying to figure out which horror movie we were in the first act of. Um, but it's also something we see a lot. In television as well, we have these. At film and television, we have Arbid Nadir, who seems to navigate through communities uh, series as both both someone who can who can most easily understand uh, social dynamics and um, and sort of actions of others through a, a, a sort of metaphor of um, of fictional narrativization but simultaneously is the only one who's aware that they're in a TV show and everybody else thinks it's, it's a sort of delusion. And I saw a lot of parallels um, between Albert's characterization and Amelie uh, and particularly the aesthetics of the film. Um, You know, I I read somewhere that Jeunet wanted Paris to look fake and everything is sort of all the saturations are pushed up and the sort of, the camera movements during her tube journeys are are sort of highly volatile and and sort of evoke uh, sensory overload. Uh, So we're very much anchored in in the perceptions of someone with heightened sensitivity uh, to sort of various uh, things like sound and light and et cetera. Um, But more than that, Amelie, you know, after her moment of triumph, uh, when she... Sort of draws Nino to uh, the sort of uh, what do you call it, the binoculars to reveal herself, putting the the photo album back into his, his satchel on the bike. Uh, at that very moment, she we have a sort of fourth wall break, and we, she looks to camera, and it's uh, it, 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 <laughs> you know I mean maybe Dan Harmon had been, been watching Emily rather than the other way around, but um, it was a very Abbott Nadir moment for me, and. Uh, it made me think, OK, so what Emily's sort of worldview is, perhaps she's someone who's been, I mean, she was homeschooled. We know that. So maybe she watched a lot of television. Maybe this, um, the way she's been sort of developed as a character is someone who needs sort of grand narratives and plot lines to sort of organise her, um, her life. And, and it very much feels like she's sort of writing her own um, sort of adventures as they unfold, you know, setting challenges and heading on that sort of narrative arc. Um, so I thought that was, you know, very significant. But I think so, I was very impressed with how they were able to fold the romantic, the, the sort of symbolism of romance, into this system of, of, of a sort of, um, cinematic representation of subjectivity, where it culminates in Nino and Amelie riding a motorcycle and they both simultaneously look at the camera and break the fourth wall to sort of symbolise his invitation into this narrative world of hers.
3: Um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the film, but beyond just the character and characterization of Amelie, the film really embodies Amelie's sort of point of view and state of mind, like you said. Um, I mean, the 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 sort of um the pop ups when when dis- describing characters and, and and the focus on a lot of small details that otherwise might go unnoticed, um sort of um either of objects or, or sensory experiences, um seem to mimic um the way we, we imagine Amelie would experience the world. And there's also um it was brought up at the beginning that Amelie's a sort of trickster character. She's, she's playful, but she's trying, she's trying to teach people things. And um, it's something I brought up in a previous episode about the Gleaners and I, this sort these sort of trickster characters who are on the fringes of society, but they have wisdom that is worth listening to or observing. And um, I think, and and sort of the film is also a bit of a trickster because there's so many different plot lines and threads and these these mysteries that we think are going to be really important, like the the guy who's fixing the fo- the photo boobs, like we think that's going to be something really dramatic. Even when Amelie finally encounters him, you know it it it's it's this big moment in the film or it feels like it and and then it's kind of like run of the mill like he's just fixing them um and yeah it's it's it is a a romance film kind of it it, it tells a romantic story but it sort of it meanders and goes sort of all over the place to get there which is really nice yeah
2: i i think um that that's really interesting about sort of things that might not seem significant. And as I was saying earlier, like in another film, possibly wouldn't be. It's interesting how Genet, particularly in this film, but he, he sort of did it in, in some of his previous films, such as um, Delicatessen, where you have these sort of striking visual effects that sort of almost seem to come out of nowhere, which sort of try to visualise those sensations for us. So like when, when Nino finds the phone booth repairman the camera sort of turns upside down and it goes orange and there are these other moments where sort of happiness seems to radiate from people or we see Amelie's heart sort of beating faster um and that really puts us into sort of her mindset and her her feelings um I think that Jeanne's visual style is very clear throughout his films. He he has a he has a real love of the color green, um, which I I don't know if that's symbolic of something or if he just really likes the color green. Um, but it's it's interesting how because one of the other films I I was thinking about um, suggesting was was Moonrise Kingdom and the films of Wes Anderson and how sort of you have these sort of perfectly curated aesthetic worlds in a sort of as, as as I keep talking about sort of autism as, as a fabric of cinema beyond just sort of a character um, as that you can actually sort of, you can go beyond the individual to sort of um, create it within the broader cinematographic aspects and, and, and the mise-en-scene of a film. Um, and an- another um, filmmaker who I was sort of thinking about, particularly at the start of the film, is M. Night Shyamalan whose films are often dismissed for their dialogue, and his dialogue is very functional. Um, his latest film, Old, sort of starts off with this this child character who, who says, hello, my name is whatever, um, I, I, I like this, I don't like that. Um, what is your name and what is your occupation? And he goes around a beach and introduces himself to people like that. I, I find that kind of dialogue <laughs> incredibly sort of, reassuring and nice it's it's quite nice sometimes to just have people's sort of exposition and intention stated so so clearly and i think that there's some of that in this film as well where the dialogue is very to the point of what this is and what that is it's very the, the specificity of the film is something else i really appreciate um the love of like statistics of just how many wing beats per minute the blue fly has at the start of the film or or um, how coincidence, coincidences sort of are set up through the specificity of time and things. So I think it it's all of those elements of, of the filmmaking process that can actually be inflected by autistic traits or autistic sensibilities, um, which is perhaps why I love the films of Shyamalan and Anderson and Janae because they 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 hit a very specific sensibility that I think is something specific to me as as an autistic person rather than just as a viewer of cinema.
1: That was really beautifully put. Um, thanks, Lillian. I think that's, you've kind of, you know, encapsulated something for me about this film and the way in which it uses cinema's repertoire of sensory effects to... to to, to enable us to, to feel things and, and see Emily feel things through those devices. And one one of the most powerful ones for me was when as when she has that moment in the cafe where um, towards the end when she's seen the guy walk out and, and she's sort of missed her moment of of making contact with him despite having set this up. And she dissolves into water and and that was sort of quite a surprise but very, very visceral effect for me. Um, in watching that and it it, it's it's a very interesting use of of those sorts of devices in art house where we usually we usually come across those sorts of um you know filmic special effects in in big much bigger high budget american films like like marvel and so forth um so it's i think it's a very interesting twist to see this 20 years ago and and in in a very different uh, genre but I'm also interested in the your comment about about time and and detail, and I was thinking about this this quite a lot like what 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 is this film doing with time because we we have this this detail of how things are happening simultaneously and it's there at the beginning and it's there again at the end you know the film opens with you know at this moment in time this this fly was dying on a road that this was happening in this other place, and I wonder what people made of that is it Is it something that is sort of drawing our attention to the complexity of the world and the way through an autistic sensibility that might strike us as, you know, being much more um, significant? It's not as screened out as it is in neurotypicality where, you know, someone has been trained to look for very particular things that perhaps through an autistic apprehension, you know, the world comes at you in this detail um or is it doing doing something else? I don't know. I'm interested in what people might like, think about.
4: I I thought I mean time was quite confusing in the film. You know, we're told very near the beginning that in the next what forty-eight hours everything's gonna change. And then uh we, we watch this film and it feels like it's happening over weeks, and it's hard to imagine it all happening in two days. Um but also Uh, You know, we're given all these incredibly precise details very early and at the end of the film. So there's a sort of sense that everything's sort of, you know, very, very sort of locked in and and there's a a sort of powerful awareness of time from this sort of directorial perspective. But then, you know, we see Emily as a a young girl and then we jump five years later and she's a 23 year old. And and so there's, I mean, later we're told she's 23, but she looked like she was about seven in the earlier slot so i feel like there's a sort of playfulness with time a sort of uh, um uh, yeah a sort of oscillation between precise detail and vagary and it's all quite um disruptive in a fun sense i think
3: i think um when people talk to me or when i talk to people most of the time about autistic sensory stuff i i try to describe it as like my senses aren't like heightened in a way like um a superhero or like you know um the character datafall he he's blind so all of his other senses are heightened it's more that I, my brain sort of doesn't have a filter so so whereas other people's brains might automatically filter stuff out that doesn't seem important to the task at hand My brain just takes everything in. And I think that's kind of what happens in in these segments you were talking about, Janet. And it. I think, to me, it it ties back to what I said about sort of community at the beginning and interdependence and sort of this, like, complex web of everyone existing and everything existing and interacting. and, And, you know, throughout the film we see sort of People's actions having effects and consequences, and um, there is a there is a certain part of Amelie that's trying to sort of fix everything, and that that can be quite a common issue I find with sort of um, especially dealing with sort of loved ones emotional um, sort of difficulties. Like if if a, if some if a friend is upset. I have to sort of check myself to not try and fix it straight away, and to just <laughs> acknowledge the feelings. And I do feel that um, Emily does that quite a lot. She she's always trying to sort of make everything right again.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting you saying that about sort of fixing things because it's interesting that Emily doesn't always take into consideration sort of the humane aspect. Of what might be causing someone's problems, she sort of tries to see a problem very much as something to be solved, and sometimes that can actually almost make things worse for people. I think. I think that the um, they, when she sets up um, Georgette with um, I can't remember his name, the 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 man who sort of was in a relationship with Gina, and then he she tries to sort of set up that them as a couple. Um because she's overheard suzanne the 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 owner of the cafe talking about what she thinks the recipe for true love is and 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 you you take two people and sort of put them together and and she 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 sees that as a literal sort of equation for success and believes that that will work and initially it it seems to because they start having sex in the in the toilet of the cafe um with rather spectacular results from a sort of sensory (laughs) perspective but um that then crumbles in the same way that other relationships had and she doesn't she doesn't perhaps see that as being a potential um way for that that situation to to go um she doesn't she doesn't see that as a um as, as a possible result because she doesn't consider the fact that that just might not be that might not you can't always sort of fix everything um and i I think that when when things go wrong, i mean certainly in my life and and um one of the one of the things that I write about a lot is about trauma and the impact of trauma on um on people's ability to sort of form relationships and and the fears that might be involved in that certainly um in my own experience with 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 relationships and 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 forming relationships the traumas that I've faced have sort of impacted that there's um there's a scene in the film where we see uh nino's childhood and um he says well where, where Amelie was lacked friends and she sort of made her friends with um these beautifully animated um imaginary creatures in her bedroom and um and her goldfish blubber um we see that nino was has perhaps sort of detached himself from people because he was he was um bullied at school and and treated awfully in that way and how what I was saying earlier about the knocks that we face can have a long lasting impact. Certainly in my life where I've I've faced trauma through through bullying and, 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 and other forms of trauma, as someone with PTSD, it's quite that's that's certainly something that has sort of made me go in on myself more and I can so I relate to it on that level to the point where when I started my, my relationship with with my boyfriend who I've been with for a, a long time now I was very frightened of of entering a relationship in the same way that that Emily is Um and I think that I was perhaps um, unaware of of the signs that he might be he might like me in that way or 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 want to sort of start a relationship with me I just complete was completely oblivious to it and I think it's interesting that Amelie herself is sort of there's there's a really beautiful visual moment when Nino comes into the cafe and she's standing behind um, a glass barrier and it's almost like she's sort of so distanced from him and she can't acknowledge that they're in the same space um, that the, there's almost she wants to put a barrier between them, and that's something that I know that I do in in my own life and 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 have done previously. Um, and then she she melts into water as you as you said, Janet, and that's an incredibly beautiful illustration of what those moments can feel like. That you you sort of you're in that moment, everything in your brain is sort of telling you that you want to move forward with something but there's something holding you back and you can't quite articulate what it is and when the moment's gone you just sort of crumble um and I I think that 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 scene in particular is is really really powerful articulating what that what those moments can feel like.
1: Can I just raise a question about the arc of the film sort of on, on the back of what you're saying Lillian that there's that in that sense of Amelie having missed her moment there, there's also um, the the time when she's watching a film and and the character in the film says, uh, and I wrote this down, if Amelie chooses to live in a dream and remain an introverted young woman, she has an absolute right to mess up her life. Um, and there's this comes into the film at a certain point, I think it's about two thirds of the way through, where what we have been witnessing in terms of Emily's intervention into the world on behalf of other people um, seems to be effective and, and delightful in the way that we're talking about and suddenly there seems to be this reverse angle on her you know what what is she doing is she living her life is this is this register which is now positioned as a dream uh, one that's that is actually working for her and i think we're sort of tasked in the in the final act of the film to to think that through and i i guess i'm just wondering whether that is uh a whether whether that's a kind of a move towards something that's more heteronormative about the film a sort of uh, that it has to end in a in a romantic clinch as you were that that, that amelie has to to, to get a partner and to settle down and, and 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 you know to live life in that in that way. Um is does does the film perhaps sell out? I'm just kind of throwing a provocation in here.
3: I think perhaps um I mean it I did I did notice that when Emily counts all the couples that are experiencing an orgasm right now, I think it was. I think Pretty much all of them appeared to be um, heterosexual, as as far as we could see, and um, yeah, it it is a bit. I d- I did notice that there was this huge emphasis on romance. When it was, t- it was said early on in the film that Emily hadn't really got, got on with having a boyfriend before, so, what, I guess why is she so focused on? on romance and partly that you know that may be a way to to hold the film together in a narrative sense and and focus the film but also it, it, it might be what we talked about earlier sort of her, her masking and feeling like that's what she should do and 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 feeling pressure that she's she's missing out and so she should really put all her energy well a lot of her energy into this into finding her true love
4: yeah i mean i think the i mean it's very clearly to me a romantic comedy it it follows many of the structures that we're familiar with um it's just there's a lot of other details that um sort of mask that structure i think um i think there's a very strong uh, uh sort of ideological um Reference to the the one, the romantic um, singular other. Um, you know, it seems like romance wasn't really for her. She tried it; it's no big deal. But no, it wasn't going to work. And the, that narrative was changed for her through discovering um, this man who has uh, comparable quirks to her own. Um, and it and it and it comes back to a theme that we've talked about before, actually, of like like for like um a a slightly dubious um maybe even conservative structure of like well what you're like this you need to find somebody else who's similar um and that will be the formula for uh, happiness um and yeah so that definitely occurs in this film yeah
2: i i was thinking um you were just saying about it being a romantic comedy and I wonder if um, what we were talking about earlier as well about um, masking as a form of emulation of what we see and what we experience and what we assume to be normal Um, because Amelie spends a lot of her time watching the television and it's not entirely clear if she's the person sending the Glassman these videotapes with sort of recordings of, of the Tour de France and um, and films and footage that, that she's sort of experiencing. I almost wonder if the structure of the film, and because I've said before that we're sort of seeing everything through her perspective, if that is part of that that emulation um, that we do get, that kvarsis at the end when she sort of um, ends up with, with Nina and we have this wonderful moment when she's making her plum cake and 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 we sort of vis- we see in a sort of thought bubble next to her what she's fantasizing the ending her ending will be um and then we sort of get that in 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 real time and we we wonder is this is this something real The, the 'cause because there's that that wonderful final shot of them on on the moped sort of going through the streets of Paris and it's as you say, it's it's this very sort of perfect ending for her, um, and very much the romantic in in my heart wants to believe that that's how it ends for Emily. But it's entirely possible to read that as as sort of part of that extended fantasy of her own world. that, you know, she she found this book and imagined this perfect man for her, and they they end up together. Um, I don't know. As I say, I like to think that that she sort of she 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 likes the idea of of having a boyfriend. I think just one who she can relate to on on a level that she hasn't been able to with other men before. And I think that what well, we was we was sort of, what's quite nice about the film is that it sort of establishes from childhood that both of them have this sort of um, neurodivergence that they they both have these autistic qualities that they both sort of they're both people who are sort of caught up in their own world and we hear that Nino's also had um short relationships that haven't worked out when when she goes to the porn shop and Nino's colleague she says um that he's had girlfriends but they haven't they didn't work out or whatever in the same way that Emily has um I almost wonder if the film sort of in in its obsession with coincidence and and sort of chance meetings says what if we had two people with very similar sensibilities and what would happen if just by chance they happened to be brought together and I think that that there's something quite quite beautiful in that which you're allowed to do in films I suppose it doesn't have to be realistic
1: <laughs> yeah no I agree with that I think the film uh, is asking questions about that relationship between t- between chance and opportunity and strategies, you know, it also sets that up for us. What's, what, what is the most effective thing in life to, to work everything out? And Amelie and does that, right? She has these stratagems, as she calls them, and she tries to make interventions, does make interventions. Um, but also, as the painter is, is, is trying to instruct her, uh, you know, one needs to, to seize the moment to take the opportunity. And I think that's also what, what we see her doing um, at the end. Um, can I just raise one more thing about the film that um, is is uh, a, a critical um, part of the the discussion about it, um, which is to do with its sort of idealism about Frenchness. Um, there was quite a, a, a strong reaction to it in one critical response that that became a debate. Um, about it being a sort of you know a retro version of, of French culture and life that was very white, um, that was more akin to kind of the fifties than than the time in which the, the film was set, um, and I think that's something that we probably need to consider. I mean, one one of the things that that struck me in watching the the, the film is that it has the it has the actor Maurice Benishu in it, who is a French Algerian actor. And it's i was just looking up the times, uh, of the, the years in which uh, he was making the, uh, *Code Unknown* and *Cache* with with um, the Austrian film director Michael Haneke, oh, yeah. and uh, and in fact, it was the same year as uh, *Code Unknown* is made in the same year as this. And I, for me, uh, Beneshu always registers that. That kind of otherness of, of French history, the deeply problematic, violent history with Algeria, and that's that's the way in which he's he's cast by Hanukkah. And I think that he, whilst he's he's in this film, he, he registers some of that in terms of his his acting um, repertoire. He's also you know, allowed to figure here as as, as a character um, who, who, uh, who is not engaged with that in this particular narrative. I don't know, I thought I'd just open that up to, to see what other people have thought.
3: Yeah, I, I did notice that the, the film was very um, white and um, apart from Lucian, I can't really think of any other characters who were people of colour. Um, there, there was a rather uncomfortable bit where Emily's walking with her father's gnome and um she's sort of intimidated by three um black men behind her and i th- i think you know there's n- apart from those four characters three of which are very minor there's there's not there's not a lot of diversity in terms of race in this film um i did notice that there was more diversity in the the passport photos in the book um mm-hmm. That Nino collects but it, it it doesn't really feel like Paris to me um at all it feels um I remember one of the first times I went to Paris you know every, everyone kept thinking I was French and kept talking at me in French very quickly and I don't speak French and then and then um someone on the metro uh threw threw a beer bottle and some chicken at me because I didn't respond so um Paris is like it's beautiful and I love it but there are there are sort of more sort of grimy real world aspects to it that we don't see in this in this film at all
4: I mean just a quick note I was having the same thought about um diversity and and I noticed the the photo album also had uh, you know had some diversity in it but it was to a degree segregated there was like a page of um, black French uh, photographs uh, people of um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, it is a, it is a strange undercurrent uh, and very much a sort of fantasy world of um, something that isn't I mean I, I didn't think it was Paris. I, I assumed that parts of it were shot elsewhere, um, uh, but it was yeah, it's all Paris. it's now a tourist attraction, that uh, cafe
2: yeah it's interesting that the film is 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 set in montmartre and it's a very sort of sanitized or or um filtered through perspective of that and i almost i think this uh, i i don't want to sort of dismiss that sort of criticism um because i think it's very valid but it's in, it's interesting for this is a film that is seen through one person's perspective and 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 yeah maybe 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 it's sort of genet or 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 channeling through amelie or 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 if it's amelie's perspective that does that results in that sort of that version of paris which is very much as you say sort of predominantly white um which is which is problematic in itself um and it's quite a different style of filmmaking to the film. Um, there's a really beautiful moment early in the film when Amelie's in a cinema and she says that one of the things she loves doing is sort of looking behind her and seeing people's faces in the dark. And so one of the things in the dark, and one of the things she hates is when people in old movies don't watch the road while they're driving because there's the back projection. and And she's watching um, Jules et Jim by by Francois Truffaut in that in that scene as well. Um, and it's such a different it's a different sort of filmmaking to the Nouvelle Vague which is sort of very much like you take a video camcorder and you go out and film what, what Paris is is like and sort of even, even though Truffaut's films perhaps are do have that sort of playfulness and and, and romance to them and and, and Godard as well also has that sort of these films which are very sort of on-the-ground filmmaking um and and revolutionary in 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 aim or but they still sort of have these these fantastical moments like um the run through um the characters running through the Louvre in Bonapart um which is very much the sort of thing that Amelie would do I feel <laughs> that she would she would sort of go on uh, go and do one of those sorts of um mad things just for the sake of, of doing it. Um so she she's sort of it's this it's this strange film that sort of feels like it's sort of moving away from gritty realism, which perhaps some of the New Park filmmakers were trying to achieve, but at the same time um presenting something that's a bit more fantastical, um in sort of um cinema de look. Luc Besson, Leos Carac style, um that it's something where you are allowed to have these breaks from reality. Um yeah. I I think it's 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 interesting you're saying about this film as sort of a French film, because it almost feels to some extent like like a sort of stereotype of France or um so almost like a pastiche of, of, of what French culture looks like. And I wonder if actually the that if that's just the influence of of the filmmaking styles that it's sort of coming out of um in in the start of a new millennium. and it being infused with those influences, things that Amelie herself has quite clearly experienced. She loves going to the cinema and seeing these films. So I wonder if that's almost inflected in the way that we're seeing the the film and the way that the film is presented. and and maybe, maybe that lack of ethnic diversity is a part of that because it's not something that you see in, in those earlier French films as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. As, as you were talking then, it reminded me of, of uh, a, a group of other films around this time, um, like Le, Par- Le Parment with, um, uh, with Vincent Cassell um, and also the works of the Spanish director Julio Medan, which are much more experimental uh, in that very kind of postmodern pastiche like way, where you know the studio system seems to be being referenced, or narrative three act narrative structures of Hollywood films are taken apart and put together in a very obvious way, and it, I, I think you're right that there was something in that moment that um, that, that this film belongs to in, in that sort of referencing of classic cinema and <clears throat> reproducing it in a sort of parodic or uh, uh, overblown, re- rewritten. Um, Form. Um, okay, we've come to the end of our time, really, um, for our discussion of Emily. I just wanted to ask people if there's any, if there are there any last thoughts that they want to share?
4: Um, I, when we were talking about issues of race in this film, and there was one small detail that I felt was maybe it didn't quite count as redemptive, but it was a sort of acknowledgement there's a lot of focus on photography, particularly these booth photographies, and we see various reasons why the portraits are discarded. And one of them was that um, a the, the contrast was all wrong on a black French person who's taking a photograph, you know, that none of their details are shown and, and it indicates that these analog or possibly early digital uh, booths are all calibrated for white people. And um, it's just this tiny, small detail that sort of shows Uh, some prejudice within a sort of institutional prejudice and I mean it it was it must have been a deliberate choice to include something like that they would have had to have created these uh, images so it's not maybe maybe there's an argument race is not a total absence within this film as an issue
3: I also as we were just discussing um, sort of the film's depiction of Paris and and the more sort of real paris it made me think of um that um Paris syndrome that a lot of tourists experience where they have this sort of idealized version of paris and then when they get there it's kind of like it, it's a city, so there are you know there there's there's there are, there is there is rubbish and dirt and um i've i've seen um some discussions online recently that um that um actually a lot a lot of Parisians can be quite rude and, and almost um and sometimes racist to to tourists and so all of this sort of combines to create this sort of like brief sort of delusional slash altered state that is actually recognized um because the real Paris is nothing like what they've seen and what they imagined
1: yeah lilia would you like the last word yeah
3: um
2: it's 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 so interesting to talk about aspects of this film that perhaps i didn't notice or, or or and i think i think that's it's one of those films that you know we started off by saying that some of you hadn't seen it for a long time and i think it's one of those films that really benefits from from re-watching it in, in the same way that sort of um, a Jacques T film has these tiny details and every time you go back to it something like playtime a vision of Paris in a very similarly sort of sanitized way um, where everything works like clockwork and everything's so carefully engineered and every time you watch it you sort of spot something else within the frame I think that Amelie's one of those films where there's all these beautiful details and it, it sort of benefits from from revisiting and it, it to some extent it's a comfort film it's it's a film that I know we sort of critiqued its its heteronormativity and it's it's sort of romantic ending but it's it's a film that feels like sort of warm embrace and and and, and acknowledgement of of how you might be feeling or the difficulties that that I faced in my life and yeah I I I would just sort of like to end by sort of thanking you all very much for 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 um indulging it and 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 taking the time to sort of look for those details and and to discuss them. Um, yeah, it's been been really lovely.
1: Uh, it's been lovely having you as a guest. It's it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss Amelie with you. So thanks everyone. Uh Lillian Crawford, our special guest this week, John James Laidlow, Alex Willison, uh and me, Janet Harbour, That's the end of our discussion of Amelie. Uh, We'll be back again in two weeks' time with a new episode. Thanks for listening.
0: You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, hosted by Georgia Bradburn, John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord and David Hartley. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Mita under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at autismcinema. If you have any feedback, comments, questions or musings, please send them to us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. We'll be back again in two weeks time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.